Welcome to the second episode of the Hong Kong History Podcast. In the first episode, we took you up to the Treaty of Nanjing. And in this episode, we're going to skip forward and take you as far as the Second Opium War. As always, great conversations with Stephen Davies coming right up. Well, welcome to the second episode of the Hong Kong History Podcast. I'm here as always, with Stephen Davies. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week when we talked about the beginnings. I think we're going to call this episode Where It Went Next. Is that right, Stephen? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. (laughs) Now, um, for those who might have just picked up on this, I recommend you go back and listen to our first episode. If you can't find us, you should be able to find us on any podcast app or on our website at the hongkonghistorypodcast.com. That's with the the in the front of it, uh, where you'll be able to listen to well, subsequently all of our episodes. This is only our second. Again, if you uh, are just listening to this for the first time, uh, a reminder that uh, Stephen and myself are just neighbours and these are conversations <laughs> Uh, rather than uh, any sort of form, or we're not claiming to be uh, the master scholars uh, of this subject, but I think, I hope you're going to find these very interesting. Apologies for my dogs uh, from the last episode who were barking (laughs) through the episode. It also goes to prove that Stephen is indeed my neighbour, as we're (laughs) sitting in Stephen's house, not mine, but it's my dogs and my children that you'll hear throughout this podcast, probably. Right, Stephen, let's get to the point. So we left last week. Uh, last week with uh, up to the Treaty of Nanjing. We just sort of touched on it. Um, We talked about Zhou Shan being the uh, favoured place for the British uh, to take over, but it wasn't possible and Hong Kong they ended up with. Um, Let's take it from there. I don't know if you want to step back at all, but um, what happened next? I I suppose... Just emphasising this is a very quirky personal take, nearly always coming from the sea because I'm a maritime historian. I'm not an orthodox land-based historian. Well, you could say that the Brits won the war, but they lost the peace because in the wrap-up for the first opium war, first Anglo-Chinese war, which ostensibly ended with the Treaty of Nanjing, there was various bits that had not been fully covered. If you read the Treaty of Nanjing, it's actually pretty short and crisp. And there were various details that hadn't been covered. And they were covered in a supplementary treaty, which was signed the following year, August 1843, which is usually called the Supplementary Treaty of the Bogue. The Bogue is the English mispronunciation, as all English people do with any foreign language they get anywhere near. Uh, it's their pronunciation of Boca, the Portuguese for Mun, uh, gate. So the entry into inner Pearl River waters is the Boca Tigris, the mouth of the tiger, um, Fuman. And that's where this treaty was signed in, in Fuman. And this supplementary treaty was obviously, I mean, the Brits, this is where I suppose culturalism and racism come home and bite you in the bum, because the Brits, as ever, underestimated uh, the Chinese gentry with whom, Chinese officials with whom they were negotiating. And these were very, very clever, highly competent men who it was not wise to underestimate. And they wrote this supplementary treaty with one particular clause. I think it was clause 13. It may be 23. It's coming off the top of my head. But I think it's clause 13, which covered the trading rights that Britain would actually have 
along the Chinese coast after uh, their winning of the war. Now, their assumption was, we've won the war, China is our oyster, we can go anywhere we like and sell Manchester petticoats and shirt tails and goodness knows what else. Hurrah! Our chaps will get jolly rich. And we can also sell opium wherever, wherever we like. But what uh, the Chinese officials had slipped in there was that, yes, Britain was in your ships sailing out of Hong Kong were indeed free to trade elsewhere in China without clearing Chinese customs and paying Chinese customs dues in the other treaty ports. But there were only, other four, there were only four other treaty ports, and they weren't really big-time places at that time. Shanghai was still pretty small. It was important from, for Chinese internal trade, but it was, in international terms, n- not very big. So, and Guangzhou was having none of it anyway, which is another little causus belli later on. And so the Brits found, here we are, imagining Hong Kong is going to become this buzzy port where stuff from all over is going to come in and we're going to distribute it into inland China, only for people to say, read the, read the small print, mate. No <laughs> chance. Understand that? Read my lips. No chance. And so Hong Kong literally became nothing much more than an opium dump for the re-export of opium into China, by which time I have to mention Chinese entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs being really smart and astute, had worked out that there's no point in paying the British premium to ship the opium from India. Uh, they could grow the stuff in China much better. So there was a, a burgeoning uh, opium biz working out of Yunnan, uh, which by the end of the century was producing far more opium for Chinese consumption than was being imported. It's quite interesting looking at the stats. You can see opium imports declining, but opium consumption going the other way. Uh, how do you square the circle? The answer is there must be domestic production. And actually met a bloke uh, only about a year ago whose father had actually grown opium uh, in a village not far from Guangzhou. Uh, as late as the 1920s. I mean, which I, wah, I went. It was pretty surprising. Anyway, so back to this inter, this this immediate post-Opium War period. So Hong Kong is actually not going very far. And Montgomery Martin, the first second colonial secretary, uh, basically was a, he was a great pessimist. And he decided that Hong Kong was completely lost. So he wrote this vituperative takedown of Hong Kong, which went to the colonial secretary, who read between the lines, realised that Montgomery Martin had other axes to to grind than the truth about Hong Kong. So it was generally not regarded. And anyway, like all bureaucracies, once you've committed yourself to a certain course of action, you stick with it until it becomes completely disastrous, at which point you look for somebody else to blame. So Montgomery Martin, they all don't go anywhere, and Hong Kong limps along, and you can you can almost sense it, but nobody ever actually says it, that what's being looked for is some way of getting this sorted out so that what we got ourselves into we could we could reboot. Uh, so this is this is for the first ten years. This is, is about about the first ten years. And so come eighteen fifty six, uh, a proximate cause arrives which is completely fabricated. There is this launcher. Now, a launcher is a a form of small craft built with a Western hull and a Chinese rig. And it was very much the favoured craft for fairly quick movement up and down coast. 
particularly favoured by pirates and smugglers. Um, nobody knows where Lorcha comes from. It, it sounds like Portuguese, but there's no word in Portuguese. You faintly like it. It might come from the English word, the same root as the English word launch, but no matter. Anyway, a Lorcha working out of Hong Kong, owned by a Hong Kong Chinese guy, is going up to Guangzhou, and it's quite clearly smuggling, um, and it's flying the British flag. And the Chinese authorities, quite reasonably, board this vessel on, on suspicion uh, and give it a good old rummaging and seize everybody. And Harry Parks, who is the most splenetic bloke in this entire state, he's, he was at this point the uh, British consul in Guangzhou. And he just was an over-the-top example of why the British Empire wasn't a good idea. Uh, he just, I mean, all foreigners were fuzzy-wuzzies and anything they did was bound to be stupid or malevolent or something. But anyway, so Harry Parks goes over the top. He seizes his opportunity. This out, outrage to the British flag. Uh, reparations, etc. Blah, blah, blah. He doesn't bother to note that the arrow, its registration which in those days was not much more than a, a flimsy bit of paper for, for convenience. Real ship registration has to wait for a fair few years before it becomes normal. But its Hong Kong registration had actually lapsed about uh, a month or so previously. So it wasn't a British vessel at the time of the Chinese seizure. So th it was purely a pretext. And the next thing is Britain is at war again uh, with China. And when the dust had settled on that, and few people remember that Britain almost lost that war. Um, it, it firstly, it wins the first engagements and then rushes off to Beijing to sort out the chaps at the top and make sure they get the message that might is right and white is righter. And they thunder into the mouth of the Dagu River, which is the route up to Tianjin and from there on to Beijing. And they've just got it wrong. Um, uh, the Chinese have been talking to the Russians, they'd fortified their forts, and the British fleet is just cut up to pieces. Um, they lose, I think, three vessels. Uh, lots of people get killed. This is the origin of the, of, of, of the American guy who is with American observing vessels off this, uh, off this engagement. And this is this eight, is, 1850? This is 59. 59. Uh, and he, this is the origin of the phrase, blood is thicker than water, because he's meant to be neutral, but he actually ends, ends up helping the Brits care for their wounded and so forth. Uh, and so they withdraw and remuster, this time get the French on board and various others, and then they go back and this time they win. And that's when they sacked um, And that's the when, Palace, when, when, when the Summer Palace gets sacked. In all fairness, again, uh, ideological history is such a bloody minefield, and nationalism is such a beastly doctrine for very stupid people that has probably killed about 300 million of the world's population so far. And I suspect, given the way the, first, uh, the 21st century is going, it's set to kill a, another half billion or so uh, in the next 50 or 60 years because it is so stupid. Anyway, uh, it's fairness in fairness and getting behind all the nationalistic rhetoric. Uh, the reason that the Summer Palace was sacked was because the... Europeans in charge, particularly um, Lord Elgin, uh, took the view that if the normal practices of warfare were to prevail, then what would have been sacked would have been Beijing. So they said, uh, 
well, what the, who are we trying to punish here? Who are we trying to, whose butt are we trying to kick? And the answer was, it was the imperial household. That's whose butt they were trying to kick. They knew that the Summer Palace was the sinusure of the imperial household's eyes. Terribly proud of it. Wonderful place. It was actually full of quite a lot of kitsch as well as quite a lot of very beautiful stuff. Mm. Uh, there was some stuff that truly was pretty vulgar. Uh, anyway, so they go in and they wreck the Summer Palace. And it's a disgraceful episode. But one does have to remember behind that disgraceful episode how much more disgraceful it, w- it could have been given practices of the day. So You mean they could have gone into Beijing? They could have given their soldiery license to sack Beijing. Right. And then the death toll would have been horrific. A, v- a stunningly beautiful city would have been destroyed, put to the yeah. torch. It, it would have been terrible. Yeah. So bad could have been worse. But then there we are. That, that could almost be an aphorism for history. Bad could have been worse. Okay. Um, so once the, the treaty is signed on that, which yet again em- beggars China by requiring China to pay for the war, which China is supposed to have caused, but actually the Brits caused, uh, Hong Kong is kind of liberated to start growing. And it's quite interesting, for example, just looking at port statistics, how you can see that Hong Kong is growing very slowly over the first 10 years. But from 1860 onwards, zup, up it goes, so that by 1900, Hong Kong is one of the world's top 10 ports, from which position it hasn't slipped yet. Uh, it's and, and were they able then to get out of this small print, as you described in the Nanjing Treaty, of only being able to sell to the treaty ports? Yes. They, 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 they using the Guangzhou authorities' refusal to, to respect the terms of the first treaty, there was no way they were going to make their city open to these damn guaylos. Uh, they, they were forced, if you like, very reluctantly. Mm. I and mean, one of the most amazing things about this second opium war was a logbook, a British logbook, which I fetched up reading uh, for reasons I'll, I'll get to, uh, of a ship called HMS Actian, which was a hydrographic survey vessel, amongst other things during the Second Opium War. And so here's the ship. The Second Opium War is is raging. And and this ship is in dry dock in Huangpu, Wampa, being completely serviced by the Chinese owners and the Chinese workforce. This is the ship of the belligerent. Uh, It's almost, you imagine, it's 1943, and a German ship is being dry docked in Bristol, to be looked after by the local guys. I mean, it's hard to get one's head around. And halfway through this, there's a, a bit of a fracas uh, in, 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 in the village in Wampa when the, the flagpole, which is flying the British flag, is desecrated by some young larrikins who come rushing along and cut the flagpole down. So the Brits march into the village to make sure that the empire is respected. And there's a disgraceful scene where they humiliate the village headman and they arrest those they thought were the ringleaders, one of whom says, you can't do this to me. I've shaken the hands with the Duke of Wellington. And this is perfectly correct. He did. Uh, it's, it's the most wonderful story because in 1846, at the very beginning when, when Hong Kong is kind of limping, a bunch of entrepreneurs in Hong Kong, including the founder of Lane Crawford, the founder of the, of the Douglas Steamship Company, 
and a couple of other chances by almost certainly by some extremely shady means from a Chinese entrepreneur in, in Wampa, they buy a junk. Now, they, there's no way they can get this out of Wampa without all kinds of squeeze being paid and subterfuge being done. They've signed aboard its crew, and we've actually got their articles which they sign in, in Chinese, uh, which are in a New York court record. And this junk is brought down to Hong Kong where it's refitted, and these guys classic Hong Kong chances. They're going to make it big. They're going to sell this junk to London and cash in on the delight uh, in things Chinese, fascination with things Chinese in London. And they call the junk after the guy who signed on the Chinese side of the Treaty of Nanjing, Commissioner Geying, and off they sail. As a result, they learned quite a lot about junks, and I wrote a book about this because it's fascinating that almost everything that Joseph Needham says is about junks is wrong, but then Joseph Needham didn't know anything about ships in the sea, uh, which is true about fright- frightfully high percentage of maritime historians. Um, and so this junk gets diverted to America. The crew sue the captain for, for back wages and for conning them into thinking they were only going to Jakarta. Uh, and the New York court helped by Samuel Wells Williams, who finds an attorney for these chaps. The New York court finds in their favour and tells the captain, either pay up or we'll distrain your ship. So the captain, rather chap called Charles Kellett, rather grudgingly pays up. And these guys leave uh, on a ship called the Candace to sail straight back to Hong Kong. And on goes the Keying, which has aboard it, in addition to its Chinese crew, a Mandarin, a fifth-button Mandarin, maybe, that's what he claimed, called Hersing, uh, a painter whose name he's called Samsing, but who knows, and a couple of other guys, including, it's said, a puppet troop, a juggling troop. But anyway, they eventually get to London. They'd set off in 1846 in December. They eventually get to London in, uh, late, in early 1848. And, I mean, they put on a good show for a couple of years. They, they never really hit the big, big time. It's, it's not that good. But they do get visited by Queen Victoria and the royal household. They do get visited by the Duke of Wellington. So this Mandarin, Hersing, he meets the Duke of Wellington and he kind of bums around. It looks like he then kind of hit, hit the skids and he starts working as a shop assistant. And there's this amazing court record where he's being, being had up for debt, I think. This is, this is in England. This is in London. Yes, yeah, he's being England. had up for debt. Uh, and it turns out that he thought he was due back wages, but his employer's gone bankrupt. And under British bankruptcy law, employees came absolutely the bottom of, of the payout, so he got nothing. And he threatened suicide and rushed from the court, it says, with a friend anxiously going after him. And the next thing, he's in this logbook saying, but you can't do this to me. I've shaken hands with the Duke of Wellington. <laughs> this is such a wonderful example of the weirdness of the Chinese coast once the, this, the imperialist phase had begun. You, you have these quite extraordinary stories of these guy, this guy, you can't do this to me. I've shaken hands with the Duke of Wellington. <laughs> this was the village head, was the, it, at the time? He was, he was a, a village elder. He wasn't actually the village Wampoa, head. Yeah. He was a village elder in Wampoa, which is obviously where he, where he must have come from. So he, he claimed to be literate, and he was teaching people Chinese on the Keying when it was in Blackwall. But what we've got of what he wrote 
looks pretty weird. I mean, he's, he's, he's got a title. He, he wrote the Chinese translation of the title of the guidebook. And it's pretty weird Chinese. You put it in a show to any Chinese person, they go, don't know about that. And his own name he wrote with, as it were, f- the phonetic characters for what his name sounded like in, in Mandarin. But I think he was actually called Mr. Ho. Uh, uh, and Her Ho sound pretty much the same. But he didn't use the standard Cantonese Ho for, for Mr. Ho. He, he came up with this other character. So his literacy was kind of dubious. But he's typical of the, of the sort of people who, in effect, formed the bulk of Hong Kong's Chinese population. Now, we don't really know enough, I don't think, uh, although I don't read Chinese. So so this is a Chinese population in, in Hong Kong. In Hong yeah. Kong, and we're talking about sort of 18... The, really the first 20, 25 or 30 right. years. So when the... Just to go back, if mm. we can seg back a little bit, when the British arrived, you have a, a, a few different populations in Hong Kong. Is that right, with the... With the Hakka people and then the original... Well, actually, yeah. I mean, the thing is, you have to remember, when the British arrived, what they got in the Treaty of Nanjing was exclusively Hong Kong Island and maybe because of Daniel Ross's curious way of depicting Ablai Chao, they got Ablai Chao. And they got the other little islands like Round Island and Tweed Island, anything immediately off the coast of Hong Kong, the Brits got. They actually thought, and you can see this in the first map of Hong Kong that's made by a chap called Thomas Bernard Collinson yeah. in 1845. And he fairly accurately maps not only Hong Kong Island, but Stonecutters Island, Ong Shun Chao, and the Chim Sha Choi Peninsula. And you can, there are various sources in, in English which indicate that the Brits somehow thought that they got the Chim Sa Choi Peninsula and Stonecutters Island, which makes sense because ultimately if you want a harbour that you're secure in, you need to hold both sides of it. Yes. Uh, and clearly they, they actually didn't. So that was another cause for the Second Opium War, which was to get the secure uh, other side of the harbour. Okay. And so one of the concessions in the treaty that ends the, the Convention of Beijing, which ends the Second I don't think you know, it's not called the Convention of Beijing. I can't remember what it is called. Brain won't come up with the right title. But anyway, the, the, the treaty that ends the Second Opium War, that concedes on the same basis as the island of Hong Kong. It concedes Stonecutters Island and the Chimshaw Chui Peninsula south of Boundary Street. Uh, so does that include the, the hills around it? No, it doesn't. No, Only okay. south of Boundary Street, uh, okay. which is still there. And so... It's it's just the just the little the little appendix that sticks down to the Star Ferry, yeah. uh, which goes about I think two kilometres up the road, uh, and that's about and that's it. Right. So that that was the totality. We go back to this. It's only Hong Kong Island yeah. that that the Brits got in the first deal. So I can't remember what I was saying. That we were talking about the different populations that they. Got oh yeah. That, so so the only population we're concerned with is Hong Kong Island. Yeah. And from what I what can one, one can work out. There were a few Hakka people who seem to have been in Chekchu, Stanley. And the Hakka were the farmers rather than the sea. Well, fishermen. they were and they weren't. Uh, they, they, their main bag, the Hakka, was stonemasonry. Uh, so if you look at places like uh, Taikok Choi and 
Leyumun, they're Hakka stonemason stone settlements. And they're very interesting because as villages, particularly Leyumun, they, they are not Hakka villages, they're just Hakka houses because the actual families all lived in Hujo on the West River, on the East River. And the men would go back there uh, for, for major festivals. But the only people, so the only people who came down and actually worked the quarries were mainly Hakka men. And that's quite separate from the Hakka village settlements who were pushed out by the Bunti, the, the established yes. Cantonese people, pushed out largely to the marginal land in the East New Territories, which is why there's lots of Hakka villages out there, and didn't really make much inroads on Hong Kong Island okay. at all. So there, there are small numbers of them, but they're, they're not big time. Um, for example, there's a small Hakka village at the tip of the Cape Dagula Peninsula, um, uh, Hok Choi, right. which, which is a little hacker settlement. But it only had 20 people okay. uh, at the first British census. So, And was, was Aberdeen the biggest? Well, I, but you see, Aberdeen was really small. because it was, uh, and, and furthermore, it's not clear. Uh, Sekpai Wan itself, which is where we think of as the centre of Hong Kong Jai, Aberdeen today, yeah. it was just a landing place. It did not have the main village. The main village, which was Hong Kong Jai, was where the Aberdeen Tunnel comes out okay, uh, around in Mochok Hang. Yeah. And there, there was also a Hong Kong Wai, which appears to have been somewhere round about where Mochok Hang is, but no map seems to show it. And the largest settlement in that little area was probably out there, um, which was where the fishermen, insofar as they had a land bit, and they didn't really. They lived on board their boats. That's where they lived. So when you look at those first mm, questionable Hong Kong censuses of how many people there were in Hong Kong, it probably wasn't above five to 6,000, right. of whom probably half lived on boats. And the rest lived in the main villages, which were pretty small. And it was subsistence stuff. This was, this was not a great contributor to the empire. And between 1842... And the second, <coughs> the second settlement um, was there at that point. Was there quite a lot of immigration in? Uh, there was a lot, but if you read Montgomery Martin and others, and even if you read what the Chinese authorities have to say, they're saying, "Look, I mean, every ne'er do well crook and chancer in Guangdong Province is hightailing it to Hong Kong because this is this a gets them." out of any chance of us getting hold of them and chopping their heads off. And, and B, it gives them a chance to get in on the gravy train, which they perceive as being possible, that they can make a bit more money. So Hong Kong is, is really a place to be kind about it, and I think probably more accurate, where people who felt a bit stifled uh, by traditional China, which like all traditional societies, did not have many avenues upwards and outwards. You could either be tremendously clever and a village back you and get you through the imperial examination system so that then the village would have a very successful son who would look after them one way or the other. Uh, or you could emigrate, which was not legally possible, technically, uh, or stew in place. Mm -hmm. And so when someone like Hong Kong opens up, then people saw an opportunity. And one of the groups of people who clearly saw a major opportunity and who had 
interestingly, I mean, they're actually called Chinese traitors uh, in a lot of Chinese historical literature right through until the end of the 20th century, were people from the otherwise despised and discriminated against uh, floating population. They call themselves the Shuixiong Ren, as opposed to the dismissive Cantonese Danja, egg people, um, which they deeply resent. And they were people who basically turned to and helped this new place grow. Uh, one of them who I particularly, I learned quite a lot about is a man called Gok Ah Zheng, uh, which means we don't really know what his name was. Uh, and he became the comprador of the infant Peninsular Oriental Steamship Company when it sets up in Hong Kong in, in the 1840s. And he makes sufficient money working as a comprador. I'll come back to compradors in a minute. He makes sufficient money to found his own steamship company, which he, he when he died, he's, he owns 16 steamships when he dies in the 1880s. He's the highest taxpayer in Hong Kong. When his funeral takes place, there are, it, there are thousands at his funeral, and, and the funeral queue runs for some ridiculous length, like a kilometer. Um, a, a, a bloke who has really made it big from effectively illiterate start in the, in the despised underclass mm. of the floating population. So Hong Kong, it did offer opportunities, and it's quite interesting that the whole world of the comprador which had been around, it's a Chinese, it's a Portuguese term basically meaning fixer, the guy who acts as the middleman between the Chinese world yeah. and, and the Western world. The Comprador, who'd been, always been around as a kind of fixer for each ship and so forth, they really blossom once you've got this new enclave with these new companies. And they, a very high percentage of them seem to come from what was then called Hengsan, which is the little county north of Macau, now called Zhongshan, and they come from it. And via Hong Kong, they spread all over China. All the first hotshot compradors in Shanghai, for example, are these guys. So they're the first, what I call the first generation of compradors. And once that's proved to be a pretty nifty route to fame and fortune, then the next generation of compradors, I think the next lot come from Shanghai, and then the next lot come from Ningbo, as gradually this idea spreads that acting as an interface between this strange but innovative Western world and traditional China in an attempt to keep China, get China to compete on its own terms, uh, it, it gets seen by the smart people as, as the way forward. And of course, this basically is running counter to the way traditional China worked. So yeah. these people were were not tremendously welcomed, even though when one looks back at them, they were an incredibly important vector for the modernization of China that begins to take off in the 20th century. And so now we're into a period, I guess, between 1860-ish right up to uh, 1897. Was it when the new territories were? Yeah. Um, well, that's what I do. I mean, I mean, the 1897, 98 war, I mean, 98 is, is the agreement. Right. So it's this, this is the period when Hong Kong grows, but it, it, by this time it's got a rival. It's got, uh, oh, I, I, actually, I'm going to finish off uh, with the, the Second Opium War, 
One of the shoot yourself in the foot problems of the Second Opium War from the point of view of Guangzhou, which at that point was still the major place for shipping, another problem for Hong Kong, that Western companies, many of them, they, they had their, their head office in China was still in Guangzhou. And Hong Kong was the kind of secondary office which dealt with the, the Western shipping. The trouble is that the Bravos, as they're called, who were the kind of militia of the Second Opium War, they were kind of egged on and wound up. And one of the things they did was to destroy all the dry dock and dockyard services, or a, a large percentage of them, in the Wangpoa area. One of them, of the episodes, being the disappearance of John Cooper. Now, John Cooper was a Scotsman who'd been brought in by P&O to set up proper dry docks so that they could service their ships. And he was he obviously knew what he was doing. He built some of the first stone dry docks that were, looked like dry docks you and I think of. The previous ones had been what are called mud docks, which he just dug into the bank. And these stone docks were great. They did the job they were wanted. And John Cooper, however, lived on a converted chop boat. So he's one of China's first recorded Western houseboat dwellers, uh, anticipating Aberdeen in the 21st century. <laughs> um, and he's on his houseboat during the Second Opium War raging when a message comes and he's called down to the edge of his boat, little landing point, and where he's grabbed, pulled into a sampan, which disappears at high speed to the nowhere, and he's never, ever seen again. So his son and his widow decide that this is just too much, man, and they decamp to Hong Kong, where they begin founding the, the dry docks, which or help Lamont and Laprate found the dry docks, which begin the whole process of, which are the ones in Aberdeen, yeah. Hope and Lamont Dock, or Lamont first, Hope second, which are the springboard from which next come the Hong Kong Wampa Dock Company, which is the relocated company that had been in Wampa uh, in the Hong Kong Peninsula. And then next thing, another British captain founds the Cosmopolitan uh, Dock Company at, uh, at uh, Taikok Shui, and and then 40 years later, Swire and uh, Swire founds the Taiku Dockyard. And these are the three big changes which which create Hong Kong as a centre for shipping innovation. Okay. So they're building ships in yeah, Hong the, Kong. Yeah, the, the first ship is actually built at Jardine's East Point. It was a diminutive schooner of only 80 tonnes called the Celestial. But it was fast as liggity split. It managed to get from... Calcutta to Hong Kong on its maiden on its maiden voyage, uh, running opium, of course, in eighteen days, and I think uh, no Bombay to Hong Kong in eighteen days, and I think you'd be hard put to do that in a modern in a modern boat. Right. That's a, a heck of a fast voyage, and having built this little first Western boat, the Celestial, gradually they develop, and and in the late eighteen fifties, just in time for the Second Opium War, they launched the first steamship built in Hong Kong, which is called, of course, the Queen. Um, and the Queen, which is owned by Douglas LaPrec, is immediately chartered to the American sort of observers who are moseying around. And this is the moment when it's all Commodore Perry's squadron. So they charter the Queen 
uh, to Commodore Perry's squadron to go have a look around. Uh, and she's captained by uh, the young Lieutenant Preble, who is going to go on to become the admiral in charge of the American expedition that grabs the Philippines in the 1890s. I mean, the, the amount of loops in these stories where people pop up. But my favourite from this moment in, 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 in Wampoa, when the Second Opium War is raging, is there's some guys racing around on a yacht. Now, this is the, these are Americans. By this time, there's a guy called Morpin, no pigtail, who is building boats for the Canton Regatta Club, which had been founded in 1838 before everything fell to worms. But he was prospering before the Second Opium War. He was building rowing boats, and he actually built an almost perfect, slightly smaller replica of the schooner America that had won the first race that gave us the America's Cup. And uh, one of the one of the Forbes, Franklin Forbes, I think, decided he wanted a replica. So he goes to Melpin with a picture and says, can you build one of these? And Melpin goes, oh, no problem, mate. I can do that. And he built really good bets. And it, somebody bought him one picture and he looks and he goes, yeah, that, there's something wrong. I can build a faster. And he did. He, he, he could see how lines could be cleaned up. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, Melpin, they're off sailing in this schooner called Atalanta. And they suddenly realize that things are getting a bit hot around them and they better kind of get themselves out of the firing line. So they whiz in behind a, uh, I think it's an, Ameri an American warship where they, where they feel that they're safe. And aboard this ship, to my insane delight when I discovered, was the visiting captain of a Peruvian vessel, no, Chilean, a Chilean vessel, which was in port, who was that well-known merchant mariner, Giuseppe Garibaldi. <laughs> because in between his first failure in Italy and his subsequent triumph, he went back to doing what he was doing, what he was, what he was trained as, which is a merchant skipper. And, so, and he goes to work for, I think it's, it, no, it's Peruvians. He goes to work for the Peruvian merchant marine, who, to my amazement, had a fairly active little trade going on between China and Peru. And one of their captains is Garibaldi. <laughs> There you go. Let's, let's go back to, um, again, I want to sort of concentrate a little bit on this period mm. of the 40 years. Uh, we, let's just, just, can you describe, we talked about Boundary Street. Well, mm. what, what was the, the border like at that point? Was there any sort of wall or anything that... Absolutely really nothing at all. It was completely fluid. I mean, the really weird thing is that when you look at early documents, it's clear that there was an absolute agreement to live peaceably uh, between the magistrates in the Yamen in Kowloon and between the villagers in the general Kowloon area because for them this was good trade, good biz, good money, uh, providing vegetables and stuff, yeah. selling, cut, building stone. I mean, they didn't want a perfectly reasonable earning opportunity to screw them up. Because I mean, we all have to realise, at this moment, there was no China. There was this large geographical entity run by a government from Beijing, but it didn't call itself China. It didn't think of itself as China yeah. in the way that France thought of itself as France, insofar as it did think of itself as France. Uh, so these were just local guys, 
and somebody was offering to buy their produce and they could see no reason at all why they shouldn't sell it. And so, for example, there's a guy called John Hamnick Collins who was a, a doctor with the first opium war uh, soldiery. He worked for the Madras Infantry. And he just hikes to a hill in Kowloon Tong, sits on it, and paints a really nice panorama of the harbour. And you can work out where he was sitting. And he's got himself in a really good position where you can see all the way from Qingyi round to Leiumun. And nobody seems to object, and there he is painting. Equally, Bernard Collinson, whom I mentioned, uh, who is surveying Hong Kong Island, and he's doing a proper triangulation because he cut his teeth with the British Ordnance Survey doing the famous Ordnance Survey map of Ireland. That's because he was a Royal Engineer. So he comes to Hong Kong charged with making a similar map of Hong Kong, and it's one of the first ever contour maps that's published that he, he makes. And he, he quite clearly put triangulation stations on Chinese territory. There's one on Qingyi. There's one on Stonecutters. There's one very close to where the, Royal, the, the Hong Kong Observatory now is. There are... There's clearly one on the wrong side, on the Chinese side of Leiumun Pass, which he actually labels uh, Chinese side station on, 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 on his fine drawings. Yeah. So clearly, nobody was objecting to these guys just kind of wandering around. There, there was, I mean, I'm presuming that people would have to, because there is that geographical sort of set of mountains, so you'd have to come up through the Shatin Pass. But if, if you were f from Yuenlong or, or one of those villages around there and you were selling vegetables into... Uh, into I just don't think... Uh, I, I really do not think... I, I have to say, I don't have any strong evidence, but I'm yeah. pretty sure that there was no... There was no trade like that. I mean, it's very much... You've got to get yourself back into uh, 16th, 17th, 18th century Britain, where almost nobody... Did any trading beyond three kilometers from home? Yeah. Because actually hauling stuff was too difficult. I mean, also you need to remember all the new territories, they were part of uh, what had been Bao'an and it became Xin'an, new, new Peace County, which was had its capital in Bao'an, which, which is now, I think, pretty much where uh, Shenzhen Airport is. Um, and... That's where everybody was saying that that was the market center. Right. So for all the people in the north, northeast New Territories, northwest New Territories, their natural market centers were north of them. So why would they frog, frog over this damn steep hill yeah. to do anything? And, and Kowloon was, I mean, it had lots of villages and lots of cultivation. When you look at Bernard Collinson's map, it's got heaps of fields. These, so this is north of Boundary Street. But north and south right. of Boundary Street. Okay. There, 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 there are lots and lots of it. This is a, a small agricultural area which is producing enough food to feed the population and a, no doubt a small surplus that they're happy to sell across to, to Hong Kong Island. Yeah. Um, so the, um, the area was, as you were saying, was booming during those... 40 years or so, um, and you talked about shipbuilding as being one of the big trades. Mm -hmm. um, was were there, were there other things other than the, the just the, the, the trade of moving things from China well, in the back end, we, to Europe? Well, in the end, we, we, we have to realise that this is a period, I mean, when the Western world is effectively inventing its system of, of business, which we think of now as modern business. It, this was by no manner of means business and banking, 
a settled and established system. When the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank was founded in 1865, I think it was, then it was relatively innovative. There were banks like it in, in India, but by and large, banking was done by what were called discount houses, which, would, which basically, I have something here, and uh, I sell it. I make a bunch of money, and I want to buy some new stuff. So I go to a discount house, and I say, can you lend me X thousand dollars with a discounted bill, which I send back on a ship to Britain? That's turned into money in their London office with the discount. That's, their, in effect, their interest. That money is then taken off by my agent to buy whatever it is, which is then loaded onto a ship and brought out to Hong Kong, right. which then I sell off to try and make my profit, which covers the discount on the discount bill, and, 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 yeah. and that's how it is. But these discount houses were a bit like capitalism always is. They overreached. And the end of the 19th century is just a litany of these places going bust. Uh, the great opium trading and general trading firm of Denton Company they banked with a big discount house called Overend and Gurney, which ran out of Norwich uh, in Britain, but also had a big London office. And Overend and Gurney went bust in, I think, 1862, 1863. Now, having gone bust, they bankrupted Dents, which is one of the biggest trading companies on the China coast. But when it went bust, it went bust. Overend and Gurney basically cleaned Dent out because they held all of Dent's liabilities, and so Dent couldn't pay its own bills. Um, so this rather rough-and-ready set of, of, of arrangements, which had been the basis of European expansion into the rest of the world during the 18th and early 19th century, is beginning to firm up into something resembling the business world we now have with proper banks, proper insurance companies. And all this is happening in the years we're now looking at, the period between 1860 and 1897. Yes. You can see things like, so for example, Hong Kong Companies Registry gets formed in the 1860s. And with a bit of, uh, now you see it, now you don't smoke and mirrors, the Hong Kong Wamper Dot Company, which is frightfully well connected with the movers and shakers in expatriate Hong Kong, managed to become number one company on the register when it's founded in 1863. And so you're getting a proper system of company registration. You're getting, for the first time on the China coast, uh, a proper modern system of land registry where people have uh, demarcated lots, properly surveyed, uh, previously, traditional Chinese stuff was done with what were called fish scale maps, and it just noted the area that you owned, and the borders are a bit sketchy, and there was lots of basis for disputes. Right. And so you, it, it, it's this introduction of a world of, of, of measurement, where everything has to be exactly measured and quantified so that the rules can be enforced, money can be taken, and cases can be sued in court. Sure. And, and, and physically, how, how was Hong Kong changing? So Hong Kong, is, I mean, it starts being planned. They, they, the first guy is a chap with a wonderful name called George Milius, who was a captain in the Cameronians. And it's quite interesting looking at how the Brits appointed the first Hong Kong government because Charles Eliot and later Henry Pottinger are kind of looking around and going, 
I mean, they're looking at the expats who are here, who, who tend to be uh, a pretty rambunctious lot, who are interested in trading and making their pile and then getting, getting out of it. And they, there are just no qualified professionals. So all the first people are people just whipped out from the forces. So the first harbour master is taken off the ship Nemesis, uh, William Pedder, He's a lieutenant in the Navy with no prospects, so he becomes the, the harbour master. And he's helped by a, uh, an ex-British merchant mariner who I think we, who looks like he's Italian or Maltese, uh, who, who is his number two. Uh, Major William Kane, he becomes the, the first magistrate. And so it goes on. And George Milius, who's a Cameroonian, for some strange reason, he becomes the first person in charge of government lands. And, and registration of the first land sales, which is a disaster. I mean, the land sales which Elliot did, which were all repudiated and which caused tremendous fuss, are the business of trying to create a proper, properly laid out town. Uh, and so you see this, this town growing up with proper roads. There's a guy who seems to be hired in about 1847, about whom I can find nothing whatsoever, Obviously very able, does beautiful artwork uh, in a very strictly representational way. He's a kind of architectural drawer. But he's an architect and engineer. He calls himself architect and engineer, who's called Murdo Bruce or Murdoch Bruce. And he is the uh, overseer of roads and the superintendent of Chinese, uh, Chinese of, superintendent of, of, of prison labor. Uh, which, which is how the roads were built. So they're, they're laying out roads, helped by the Royal Engineers. They're building buildings, helped by the Royal Engineers. They're putting in Hong Kong's first water supply, which is only for the army, of course, uh, which flows down from some cast iron tanks, one of which still exists on Hong Kong U campus. Can you believe this? Is, it is not being looked after by anybody. It is a tank almost certainly made in about 1852, 53, because it still has the Board of Ordnance foundry mark on it. And the Board of Ordnance was folded up in 1855 because it was so useless in organising the logistics of the Crimean War. So it got punished by being abolished and its duties passed off elsewhere. This still stands in Hong Kong U campus. Can you imagine anywhere else on the planet where this would not be a conserved object? It is not a conserved object although we have fairly good evidence that it's one of, I think, eight, or roughly eight, which were brought in to provide the water supply, piped water supply, to the first military barracks and the first military hospital. And then subsequently, that piped water supply starts to spread out to the civilian world, government first, of course. This was the building of Victoria, what was then called Victoria. The, the city of Victoria, yeah. Uh, and, and Taiping Shan, was this really where the... the Taiping Shan gets kind of named. Uh, right. In effect, to begin with, it's, it, uh, the whole place is a kind of shantytown. Yeah. Uh, you see lots and lots of people living in mat sheds, which are like you see it uh, at, at uh, Chinese New Year and at the Hungry Ghost Festival where you put up a an edifice full of, uh, made of bamboo framing. And in those days, it would cover it with woven uh, rattan matting, which has kept the rain out. And, and that was pretty standard temporary buildings. And the first church we have reference uh, to in Hong Kong, which is an American Baptist church, is a, a temporary matchette. So that, nobody is thinking of Hong Kong as tremendously permanent. There really is no sense in those very first years of permanence. Right. And so... 
It takes the government to commit itself to building buildings, the military to starting building permanent barracks, and the main trading houses to start building themselves permanent buildings. And then the whole place begins to take off. And that's when the, the colonial government steps in and starts to sell proper, properly laid out land lots so that they can make sure there's, you've got proper, proper streets uh, and so forth. But of course, they, they actually commit one complete lunacy. They fail to specify what the northern boundary of the marine lots are. So you sell waterfront lots and you say the inshore is the, 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 the northern edge of Queen's Road, this distance of it, extending so many meters uh, towards the shore with an area of this. But they haven't specified where the northern boundary is. So all these guys go, and, and, that, and this area is solely for its rateable value. So all these guys are going, whoo, nice one. If we reclaim outwards, we can get much, much more area, and it's not measured. So we don't pay rates on it. That's cool, eh? So they do. And Hong Kong shoreline, you can actually watch it between two iterations of a naval chart in quite literally two years. The whole shoreline marches about 100 metres to seaward, 50 to 100 metres to seaward. This causes siltation all along. The whole place stinks horribly at, high, at, at low water. And the government, by this time John Bowring, is going crazy, uh, thinking we, we've got to get hold of the waterfront. The waterfront, we, nobody can get at the waterfront. It's all owned by these private people. So then there's a real standoff with the people who own the marine lots. And eventually government sorts it and they build uh, the waterfront road, which becomes Connaught Road, uh, in order to get the waterfront back into public control. So, the, I mean, the, this whole history of this part of Hong Kong is the attempt to create a city ruled by modern-ish banking Law, business organization, government, and town planning. And, and in the meantime, Hong Kong's Chinese community is beginning to prosper, but, and this is something covered very well by a local historian called Elizabeth Sin, they are in Hong Kong, but from the expatriate point of view, not of it. So what's happening whilst the British government is doing all this and British companies are doing all this is that the Chinese community is creating its parallel, uh, very effective system of government with its centre in the Tonghua Hospital Group. So something that is much more recognisably Chinese to Chinese people, which runs the disciplining and the care and everything else for this otherwise neglected group. The British government wasn't really interested in them, except in terms of preventing them making a nuisance of themselves. It wasn't actually concerned with their welfare as such. And that was left to them to look after them for themselves, which they did very well. And it, it's only when we get towards the end of this period, with the Great Plague of 1894, when suddenly these two things start coming together with some sense of common cause, uh, which then begins the next phase, if you like, of, of the development of Hong Kong. 
Well, we've got just about the end of our hour. Um, thanks always for your conversation, Stephen. I mean, as you as you listen to this, you'll realise that um, this is really Stephen's podcast and I'm just asking a few questions here and there. Um, I've got to say, we, we, are, we don't have a sponsor yet, so if you are interested in a little bit of advertising or promotion, please get in touch with us. Uh, we are looking for someone to cover the costs of this podcast and uh, you can contact us through the website which is the hongkonghistorypodcast.com. I think you need a three W's before that. Um, I also need to say that we don't have uh, a plan to continue in the vein that we've done in these first two episodes. So we've kind of wanted to start at the beginning and talk a little bit about that. But uh, we are hoping that in future episodes we're going to take themes... Uh, and just kind of run with it in the mm. way that we have done uh, very much in these first two episodes. Uh, we like the idea of just having them as conversations rather than as being structured, um, sort of historical, chronological uh, discussions that take you through one thing to another. Um, uh, but for now, I think that's about it for this week again. Thank you very much, Stephen. And we will try and get back on for another conversation next week. Bye-bye.